Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And we are a dialogue podcast, which is essentially the opposite of a traditional interview. We aim to have real conversations uh, that are not edited, that celebrate the people, ideas, and companies that stand out. On this episode, we have a riveting conversation about how to build a legendary board of directors for your company with entrepreneur and advocate Coco Brown. We are sponsored by our friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business and take your financial reporting and governance to the next level at netsuite.com different. That's netsuite.com different. And my friends at Splunk want to underscore how strategic data is, and it's becoming more and more strategic every day. As a matter of fact, uh, research firm IDC tells us by 2025, the average person, get this, will interact with a connected device nearly 5,000 times a day. The future opportunity is clear. You want to become a data-savvy business with data at the core of your business. And Splunk is there to help you. Splunk is the category king in big data. Splunk is the company empowering you to seize the massive data opportunity that's in front of all of us. Go to Splunk.com today. That's S-P-L-U-N-K.com today and tell them Lockhead sent you. All right. On this episode... An entrepreneur I admire very much, Coco Brown of the Athena Alliance. Uh, Athena is a global community of women business leaders committed to driving uh, diversity on boards of directors and developing new women leaders. We have a fun, powerful conversation about what it takes to build a legendary board, why Coco thinks the old model of creating boards is worn out, why boards need to have fresh talent and refresh themselves, why diversity, uh, the big D diversity of skills and people is required for a company board. And she lets you know what she thinks is required to build a legendary board. Pay special attention to the part of the conversation where Coco explains why she shifted Athena from being a nonprofit to a profit-making startup. Check out Lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com for the show notes on this episode. And now, as Joy Ramon said, hey-ho, let's go. So what Athena does, just to kind of recast that, is um, we're essentially bringing the top tier of women together um, in a digital ecosystem that um, that provides a lot of opportunity for them across um, across disciplines. So the disciplines being women who are executives, so VP level and above. Um, women who are board directors and commercial entities, so public-private, um, women who are investors or on the investor track in uh, venture funds, and women who are venture-backed uh, entrepreneurs. When you bring that ecosystem together, the, the cross-pollination of bringing each other business opportunity, creating opportunity for each other, creating mentoring and leadership um, experiences and, and exchanges... Uh, is tr- is tremendous. So that's one thing. So so in that vein, we have 350 women today growing, you know, constantly, who really represent the top tier, you know, the 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 cream at the top of women in business, um, ranging from a hundred of those women being 
on significant public and private boards from Royal Bank of Scotland and Fiserv and the largest gold mining company in the world and Hasbro and on and on and on to women who are um, uh, executives in companies like, you know, top executives at Viacom and Microsoft and Cisco and, um, you know, Gainsight and Workfront and et cetera, et cetera, right, that, that are coming together in this, this uh, dynamic ecosystem we've built that is in part LinkedIn. It's in part better up if you're familiar with them in terms of like coaching. Um, and it's in part um, matchmaking, uh, which I liken more to Bumble because there's a demand base outside of this ecosystem that wants access to these women. Um, and so that, you know, that started with board seats, but that's really expanding beyond board seats at this point. Oh, wow. So now you're introducing women to opportunities in executive positions or various other things. Yeah. So we haven't gone to the executive positions yet, but every CEO we talk to about, um, you know, a board opening that he or she has, they're always also saying, and I'm looking for a CMO and I'm looking for a CFO. And so we're moving in that direction. The other thing that we're doing today, though, is because we have this incredible base of, of women, people looking over the fence are, are um, really exclusive high-end events um, that are looking for the right attendees or the right keynote speaker, um, investors, uh, so, so investment firms looking for advisors, thought leaders, voice of the customer, business development for their portfolio. Um, so we're doing, we're doing matchmaking beyond just the board seat at this point. Um, and the Bumble-esque sort of you know, example is that we're the only platform out there that brings every opportunity that comes to us, comes to our members, comes to the women directly and stays in front of them. It's not like a flashed email. It's in, it's in our platform and they get to um, choose which ones they want to uh, put themselves forward for, regardless of whether or not our matching tells them that they're a good fit. We may say you're about a 25% fit to this, but they can say, no, no, I should be considered and here's why. So um, that's kind of the bumble, the bumble element. And I assume the the people doing the recruiting out of the uh, Athena platform, uh, guys are allowed in to recruit for some of these women. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. If you were to look at our, our website today as an example, we have, um, I don't know, I think it might be 10 guys on, on our uh, community page that are CEO champions. Most of the, the guys that are involved with Athena are CEOs or board directors or partners at venture firms, right? Because that's the demands. And, and most of those people are guys. That's the demand side of the, the equation is um, guys looking to expand their network with women and, and better their companies. Yeah. Yeah. So guys are, guys are welcome to hang around every once in a while. No, you know, it's actually, it goes beyond that. I think guys are essential. <laughs> and, uh, they're, they're really a, a key part of, of the whole. And, um, and so we're not trying, there's a lot of organizations out there that are trying to focus on women just for women and you know, networking just among women and, and women creating opportunity for women or women only hanging out with women. And that's not what we're trying to do. We're um, a big part of what we're doing is providing agency for women and to provide agency for them. Like I liken this to a Hollywood agent. If, if, if you're an actor, you go to Hollywood, you get an agent, not just so you can get auditions, which is, you know, sort of shots on goal interviews for board seats in our sort of traditional sense, 
but also so you you know where the actors are hanging out. You you know you get to rub elbows with the right people, that sort of thing. And you get invited that, to the right that, parties. Exactly, that's the agency that we're creating, and so that agency only works if we let the men in. If we have friendships and and value the men in the equation. Interesting. You know, there's this thing, there's this world I've been introduced to in the last few years. Uh, I, I think the party got it started in real estate, although I, that might not be right. It's where I first experienced it. But these things people call mastermind groups. Oh, yeah. Right. And it's like, you know, seriously, seriously, ding dong, people get together and spend a bunch of money so that they can have the privilege of hanging out with each other and talking to each other about <laughs> shit. <laughs> that, I mean, <Yeah. laughs> but this has become like a thing. It's like, um, I don't know. It's like an adult executive entrepreneur play group that we all pay to be part of. <laughs> there's all sorts of variations on that. There's, you know, YPO, there's the battery there, you know, so if you think about sort of, you know, sort of CEO groups like YPO, you think about battery or the wing or any of these kind of um, club like experiences or even people, there was this thing around every, you know, people hosting Edwardian dinners for a while, right? Like the idea that we one one conversation, one table, and it's a very um, deep conversation on thoughtful things. And and I think that I think there is a lot of energy around around that. Um, and we do a lot of that, but we do it all virtually because we just don't believe people want to be in their cars and traveling as much as we make them these days. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. I don't want to go anywhere. <laughs> I don't want to go anywhere either. No, I'm with you. I mean, you've got your great place in Santa Cruz. I look out at the ocean in Moss Beach. Um, and, and same thing. I just actually, just before you and I got on this call, I just ended another call that was 33 women, um, which is, uh, you know, you could call this our mastermind group. I don't know, but we, every week, Essentially, we run a, a track called Boardroom Insights. We get onto Zoom, um, which is what you and I are on right now. We ask that at least half the women be video on. We don't care which hotel they're in, whose you know guest room they're hanging out in, whether they're in their backyard, if they've put their makeup on, or they're in ponytails. We don't care about that. We are having a deep discussion about a particular topic that is is um, meaningful to their advancement. So in this case, it was. If you're a non-financial expert and you've been added to the audit committee of a board, what do you do and what do you need to understand and how do you add value um, and, you know, kind of what are your risks and gotchas, et cetera. Super which side do the topic. debits go on and which side do the credits go on? That sort <laughs> exactly. of shit. Exactly. Yeah, that sort of shit. <laughs> and it's, but it's the thing is like, I get all of these notes after the fact saying, thank, thank you for not making me drive anywhere. You know, thank you for creating so much meaning in such an impactful short period of time without making me go somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And, and so uh, you don't have any physical events right now, Coco? We do occasionally, but they have to be pretty significant. So for example, in Boston, I just had a sit down fireside chat with Brian Moynihan, who happens to be the CEO of the third most valuable bank in the world by market cap and one of the 10 most profitable companies in the world. If I can get into a room with Brian and have a conversation with him in a fireside chat around, um, you know, revolutionizing leadership, then uh, we'll make an event around that. And so we do that as a physical event. And, and which bank was that? Bank of America. Oh, it's B of A. Okay. 
Yeah. yeah but, uh, you know, that's not a significant company. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, third, third most valuable bank and the most yeah. possible company. You're right. <laughs> well, and I, I assume part of why he's talking to you is he create he he considers this diversity initiative, this conversation to be an important thing that the bank is on. Yeah. And and in fact, actually, um, what we were talking about, I, I personally am tired of talking about diversity and, and just, you know, women and let's get more women in here. And I, I'm I'm tired of that conversation. I've moved it for the last three years and I also think it hasn't evolved. Um at sort of that surface layer. So what we were talking about specifically wasn't about diversity um, from a gender perspective or even any of those demographic perspectives. We were talking about how one of our biggest problems in in running great companies today is that we have a very old model for how we put together a board and what the board focuses on. And there's a very new model for what a board needs to do and how it needs to be configured and the kind of skills that need to go into it. And so what does that look like? And how do you get there Um, actively, not waiting for someone to retire eight years from now, but actually asking board members to step off the board and to make room for fresh new talent. Uh, And so that was a very difficult conversation. So Brian and I had a fireside chat and then we talked with Colin Angle, who's the founder and CEO of iRobot, the, the Roomba. And, um, and then similarly with uh, George Clune, uh, Colony, who's the um, founder and CEO of Forrester, who both actually went through this process and refreshed their boards and said goodbye to old directors. And so that was kind of, that was the conversation that we were having. And Brian has a lot of success in that space himself. So it was a great testament. And so um, what's the new model board if I was the CEO of a meaningful company or maybe if I was an entrepreneur um, and you were advising me on how I should think strategically about the board and the shift from the old way to the new way, what what would you tell me? Yeah, well, so um, the, the, the general shift, like the big picture shift is you have... It's clear and undebatable that it's no longer true that companies tell consumers what to buy and what to think, right? Like that's so many years ago now. Instead, it's the opposite. And it's also the opposite en masse. Like if we want to tell a, a, a company that they're screwing up, we can do so with a lot of mass behind us from social media and a broad base of consumers and constituents really, really quickly. And so you see that impact in companies like Uber and you know um, United Airlines and Wind Resorts and et cetera, et cetera. And so the boards are now Google's being employees went uh, and protested. Yeah, on exactly, Google. So the board is ultimately responsible for long-term shareholder value, and you know we can hold up a lot of CEOs who've been in charge of their companies forever and even founded them. But the median tenure for a CEO is five years, which means half of them don't last that long. And so the board ultimately is the one that's accountable to that long-term viability. And that accountability means they have to really understand and be able to connect to the stakeholder, not just the shareholder. And so the boardroom needs a lot more... um, Empathy, connection, communication, understanding of the marketplace and, and, and connection to the marketplace. And if you look at the old board, 
it's seated in former CEOs and financial experts. The average age is 63. The average tenure on the board is eight and a half years. And the committees are comp, which is largely about CEOs compensation and sort of overarching equity structure. Succession, which is largely about the, or, or non-gov as they call it, which is largely about uh, the board itself and the CEO. And then audit, which is, has historically largely been about the financials, but it's about risk in general. And so in the new world, people are trying to shove stuff into that, making them more and more pregnant, those three committees with those same talent pieces. You know, like audit is all financial experts, and yet it now it's responsible for cyber risk. doesn't make sense. So, so you're starting to see this... Um, need for a much wider range of skill sets in the boardroom, people who understand the consumer. So go to market um, strategists and, and leaders. Hey, what uh, about some marketing people on the board? Exactly. Yeah. No, you're seeing, I see that particularly the, the younger the companies, the series A, series B, the sort of later stage um, privates, they're the ones who are saying, I could really use some product expertise on the board. I could really use some market expertise on the board. I could really use some sales expertise on the board. Or, right. You know. are, are, we, are we moving to, this is sort of what I'm beginning to feel, but that if you sort of look at the, 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 the seminal strategic areas of the company that have a, generally a C-level executive who's a direct report to the CEO, that each of those areas, maybe not every single one, but each of them, yeah, we are going to have a very serious uh, product or technology leader uh, entrepreneur right. on the board. Yeah, we are going to have a marketing leader on the board. Uh, yeah, we sales. Yeah, we're going to get somebody who's run sales at a company three x our size. Exactly through the ride, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, exactly, exactly. But the entrenchment of the current way of being is because. The old school model is that the boardroom is a place where you go to retire and you accumulate three to four boards. And now you're making half a million dollars a year on your board work. And it's a great gig and you can do it into your 80s. <laughs> like, it's, it's really hard to get that entrenched um, set of people out of that model and bring in people in their 40s, people even in their 30s who are contemporaries, who are working in operating roles who have a much wider range of experience that's turning, you know, all these um, sort of historic viewpoints on their head. And it's hard to get those guys um, out of that thinking. And that's exactly what we were talking about in this event in Boston. It was fantastic. Very, very cool. It's interesting. I, I'm trying to remember now who I had this conversation with. I wish I could remember. Uh, but it was using the D word that you're not stoked about anymore. But that, that also, <laughs> no, no, I still, I'm still stoked about it. But <laughs> I'm, just po I'm just poking at you. Um, that you also have to have diversity across multiple areas, and one of them that we don't talk about is age, right? And yeah. so, you know, on one hand, you have um, older folks on boards, but in, and I don't want to necessarily go down this rabbit hole unless you want to chase me down here. But you know, there's real ageism in Silicon Valley as well, right? And yeah. so, you know, there's a lot of people who believe you can't be a, a founder north of 35. When, That's right. point of fact, the data says the companies that produce the greatest shareholder returns are founded by people who are 40 and older. And so, anyway, regardless of all that shit, 
yeah, why not have a 30 year old on the board? And why not have some 60 year old on the board? And right. of course, men and women. And, you know, look, we're also the big, the big D, right? And so um, a diversity of background, a diversity of education yeah. level. Listen, I'm somebody who doesn't have a, didn't graduate high school. Okay. I'm not a dumbass to have on your board. Um, I don't really right. want to be on your board, but you know, it, <laughs> don't necessarily look a lot of boards are like, Oh, MBAs only, or, you know, a lot of scientific yeah. companies, a lot of, well, if you're not a PhD, why is, why is she on the board or whatever? Like, I think we got to broaden ourselves. That's, that's what, that's what the big message is now. Absolutely. So Forrester is a great example of it. The George Colony who started Forrester, his board have been together for, I don't know, 16 years. They're all 63-ish. They're all white men. They're all in Boston and they all come from Harvard or MIT. Like they were so not not diverse, right? And his and and this is the conversation I'm more interested in. I mean, I support, I I'm I'm out on in the front with women, right? But the more interesting conversation is how do you make sure that the company, you know, that you don't become irrelevant, that Forrester does not become irrelevant because you're so myopic in the way that you approach everything that you can't see the rest of the world. And so they were looking for Silicon Valley. They were looking for younger. They were looking for a variety of industries, a variety of career experiences. So they were looking for more than just let's get two women on our board or three women on our board. Um, but I do hear also the opposite of boards that continue to, but we only want board members who've graduated from one of the top Ivy League schools. It's like, all right, well, and that is most of the board members um, historically have Ivy League educations. Yeah, well, this is probably going to be a terrible thing to say, but I'll stick my brain up next to any Ivy League brain, particularly yeah. in areas where I have any reason to open my mouth. You want to have a marketing conversation? All right. We'll roll out a room full of marketing PhDs and we'll we'll yeah. we'll move around in the octagon a little bit and see who does what. <laughs> with you. And I and I had an Ivy League education, but I, I'm with you. I'm I'm I won't hold it against you. Yeah, thank you. I think School of Hard Knocks is, is far more valuable personally and, and uh, just, relevant. Look, there's a lot of ways to be a successful smart person, right? Right. Some of them are less traditional than others. But to to your right. point, I so I like this idea because uh, I haven't been on a board for quite some time, Coco. And there was a point in my life where I was sort of on on several public and private, and you know I thought this was going to be a path, or at least certainly part of my professional life. And over time, I just rolled off them and haven't really been on one for a very long time. I've been advisor boards, but it's compl that's completely different in advisory board, as you well know. And the reason I stopped wanting to be on boards was at least in our world, so the Silicon Valley world, this may sound like a crazy statement, but you know, hey, why stop now? <laughs> a lot of boards didn't do much that was strategic. Right. So it was, to your point, um, post um, Sarbanes-Oxley, it became a very legal, very finance-dominated conversation to the point where legal and finance got confused about what their job was. They started to think their job was they could tell the company what it could and couldn't do, as opposed to their real job, which is take what the company wants to do and tell the company how to do that in a way that adheres to accounting practices and, and standards and that adheres to the laws in the countries in which we do business. But anyway, so there was a whole legal and finance takeover of the boards. 
And a lot of, and then, you know, it was like budgeting and shit and approval of the plan and, and, you know, the, the comp. And, and so it, while doing strategic things wasn't strategic. And to me, big G governance is not just about protecting the company and making sure we're doing the right thing. That's hugely important. I'm not shitting on that. We need a lot of eyes on that. Absolutely. And, but big G governance is to your point, if I'm on the board, I have a fiduciary responsibility to look at one thing, which is, are we producing long-term enduring value, right? And are we doing it in an ethical, responsible, and yeah, I'm a little heart-centered. I want to feel like this is a good company in the world, right? Are we, do, are we right. treating our people well? Are we treating our customers well? Are we trying to do things that are environmentally at least aware, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Are we trying to be good fucking people in the world or not, right? And are we right. building long-term, sustainable, enduring value? That's the job, right? Well, if that's yeah. the job, why aren't we talking about the product plans? Why aren't we talking right. about how we're trying to design and dominate this category? Why aren't we talking about strategic acquisitions that could change the definition of our space and put us in a leadership position and cause our competition to shit himself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Agree. I, I totally agree. And I, I think if you look at the, the structure of boards, just even the agenda, they spend too much time um, backward looking. And so they distract themselves with all this sort of backward view and, and kind of budget versus actual kind of focus and diving into the sales metrics and not really looking forward to relevance in the future and, um, and opportunities and risks out into the future as opposed to just opportunity and risk of the past. The other thing, I, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, if you're really going to get that though, in today's world, you have to do, you hit it, the nail on, on the head, you have to create almost a, an executive tier in the boardroom that looks like your, your C-suite, but is 3X bigger than where you are today or in the market you're trying to get to or, you know, that represents those really big rocks, you know, or those big imperatives, you know, are your path to that next point on your horizon. And that's not retired CEOs and financial experts. I mean, you can have a few of those. That's great. But um, that's not really what, what you need on your board any longer. The other area I think I would want if I was a CEO today is... Uh, the more educated I get about the most forward-leaning technologies, uh, you know, machine learning and AI and drones and 3D printing and genomics and CRISPR and uh, there's a ton yeah. of incredible things going on in, in, in digital technology around marketing. Um, and I think we're really, you know, uh, had Tom Siebel on his book, Digital Transfer Transformation. I always want to say transportation. I don't know what's wrong with me. Digital transportation. Transformation. <laughs> uh, a great book. Very thoughtful, thought-provoking. I thought uh, Bruce Cleveland echoing a lot of that and adding his own insights around um, the companies that Wildcat is investing in. He sees a complete reimagining of what you and I understood as the technology stack um, happening right now. And so... Whatever part of the revolution in tech that you want to talk about, there is a new digital transformation going on. I believe there's a big thing happening with data where data used to be a record of what happened and now data more and more in real time makes things happen. Mm -hmm. um, IDC says by 2025, 
the average person will interact with some kind of a digital advice 4,800 times a day. Yeah, that's interesting. I believe it. My point in all this, my head is like swirling with all this stuff and I get time to think and have all these amazing people on and so forth. And so long, long story longer, Coco, if I'm a CEO today, don't I want one, maybe even two people who are steeped in these new, very forward-leaning digital technologies that are, that are completely changing what's possible from a business model perspective um, to be advising and working with? You know, maybe I have a chief digital officer, um, but I, aren't I? I'm looking yeah. at these new technologies yeah. and I'm understanding that, hey, shit, things are changing fast here. I need to be all over this and I need some help. And I need some people who can help me and our people in this regard. Are boards doing this? Yeah. So uh, I'll give you an example. Um, a $14 billion market cap company in the dental equipment space. So basically anything to do with, you know, from replacement teeth to dent- or dentures to whatever the Visalign kind of thing and all the office equipment stuff, they kind of have a corner on the market of dental equipment. And, um, and they have an open board seat and they're looking for someone who is essentially a CTO type um, in an e-commerce environment because they, like a lot of their peers, are moving from this sort of traditional model of inventory management of, you know, the, the buyer, buyer seller sort of relationship. Um, and then the distribution model, um, uh, being moving from more of that traditional brick and mortar model to an e-commerce style model and with a lot more, um, intelligence built into the systems to help them understand the relationships and needs of their end customer. If they're going to do that, you know, they need that competency, obviously, within the organization. But it's also so transformative for the business that they need to also have that the ability to have those kinds of conversations and vetting at the board level. Um, Royal Bank of Scotland, as an example, also, they're going through a huge digital transformation, hundreds of millions of dollars. And they that that financial bucket is being uh, overseen at the board level. And so they created a specific innovation and technology um, committee and a chair of that committee. And that committee spends a lot of time with outside vendors, bringing people in to teach them about blockchain, bringing people in to teach them about DevOps even. Like they're learning because they have to steward that, that money for the transformation and also what it means for the future. That's awesome. It makes a ton of sense. And I think even if you're a smaller company, uh, you know, if I was an entrepreneur running a, a six location uh, a, a pizza parlors in the middle of the country somewhere, I'd want somebody, maybe not on my board, maybe on my board, but I want somebody around me that meets with me on a fairly regular basis who knows something about some of the super uh, forward leaning stuff. Absolutely. And, and one of the problems that a lot, I talk to a lot of these um, CEOs, particularly the venture backed CEOs, where, you know, they're now at this series B, series C stage. They've got five people on their board. Maybe they, they have two open board seats and, and they're surrounded by investors and they can't, you know, they're, they're surrounded by investors. And the one thing they want or they think they want on their board is a CEO who's made it, right? So they, everyone, one of these CEOs comes to us and says, Hey, I'd like, um, 
you know, a future version of me on my board, somebody who's taken a company public, who's taken it to a billion dollars, who blah, 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 blah. Why do you want that on your board? I want that on my board because I want a mentor. The problem is as soon as you take that mentor and put them on your board, you've, you've taken away all the bandwidth they had for you as a mentor and you've turned it into them as a governor. And now they got to play a different role. You should have those people, have them as your mentors behind the scenes. But what you need on your board are the people who are going to drive you into the future, who are going to take you to that pre-IPO point or to that IPO point. And that is going to be, you know, rock star marketing people, rock star product people who can go from, you know, small sales to massive enterprise sales and things like that. But that's really what we need to be designing on our, on our boards. That's fascinating. I couldn't agree with you more. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, um, how do you think gals are doing in the workplace? Um, it's been what? Has it been three years since the Me Too movement? Does that yes. sound about right? Two, um, I think. But yeah. Two. Yeah. Um, um, and obviously now... Well, and sorry, go ahead. Well, it's been a couple of hundred years of the, <laughs> the women trying to catch up with the men for thousands of years. But, um, you know, I, I'm an optimist, as we know. Um, here's what I think. I think that um, there's so much energy behind empowering women that it's happening. Um, that, you know, it's not, gonna, it's not a flash in the pan. It's not a movement. It's not a time in history any longer. Um, but the question is, what's happening? So I'll get back to that. But the second thing is, if I look at my kids, I have a 14-year-old and 18-year-old. They, you know, they're empowered. They, they equally have a boy and a girl. They equally see the potential for themselves as great, but also they're, they're very, um, protective of their, of their community. They have transgender friends. They have friends who don't know what they are. They have friends who are clearly gay. They have black friends and white friends and Hispanic friends. My daughter was in the quinceanera this weekend. Like, they're very integrated. Um, as long as you, as long as you enable your children to be integrated, they they will be integrated and they will be socialized. Um, and then millennials too, you know. So having much more of a, of a, a sort of a, a social um, responsibility bent, those things bode well for the future. But in terms of today, I, I think that what is happening for nothing's happened for women. If you look at the number of women who are, um, the percentage of, of C-suite SVP and VP roles women hold, it's improved by like 1%-ish over the uh, last five years. I thought I read uh, that the number of women running Fortune 500 companies has actually gone down. Is that right? Yeah, but that's a really easy number to swing because there's only like a handful of women. So you take one out and you all <laughs> just killed the stat. One woman leaves yeah. and the whole thing changes. <laughs> yeah, I think it was uh, whoever runs, um, was it Pepsi? No, 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 not Pepsi. Uh, oh God, what is her name? Indira. When she said, I think it's Indira. Anyway, when she stepped down, that sort of blew the and when the when uh, the woman who was running PG&E left, I think that not her too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I mean, that's that's a that's a hard one to like. Um, zero is zero, basically. Um, but I I I think the the biggest difference, the thing that I think is creating a, a lot of uh, potential for women, is you got to look at where women actually play. So women are fifty five percent of CHROs, chief people officers. 
They're 32% of CMOs. They're 35% of chief customer officers. They're even 35% of chief medical officers. They're um, 19% of chief information officers. But women are only 5% of CEOs and 11% of CFOs. So what, what I think is a positive happening for women is that the world is starting to care more about roles we used to marginalize, right? So you're seeing CHROs and CIOs moving out from underneath the CFO and reporting directly to CEOs. You see the CMO having a massive budget and control over, you know, it's not just a marketing function. It's really a go-to-market and a connection to customer. And the you chief went customer the numbers, officer. You went yeah. through uh, numbers pretty quickly. Our CMO was at 35. Is that, did I get that right? CMO is 32. 32. And chief, chief customer officer, which didn't even exist 10 years ago, is, 30, is 35%. And that role is a power role. I'm really excited about that. And then you hear the, these new roles, chief growth officer, you know, we didn't used to have chief revenue officer, but the number of chiefs in the C-suite is growing. And then the marginalized ones are getting more power, which is giving women more power because they play in the marginalized roles. I mean, if you're a CEO today and you don't think that whether you call it HR or people or whatever you call the function, but the function mm-hmm. called the people who work here their care and feeding. Um, right. If you don't think that's a strategic function in your company, right. like, you're fired. Right. And there are a lot of CEOs who still don't think that's a, a strategic function in their company. And there are a lot of, of, of modern CHROs who are trying to combat sort of the old view of the CHRO. You're not a, you're not a business person. You're a touchy-feely person. Um, I see CHROs, the, the ones that are, are growing up today that are, that are building these modern companies, they are absolutely business people. They're about organization design and architecture, global workforces, gig economy, millennials is 33% of their workforce. Like they, they have no ability to just sit back and be sort of a touchy-feely organization. Yeah, they're, they're not party planners and payroll check producers, right? Not at all. They're I mean, really powerful. Yeah, that's cool. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, so that that sort of thing will give women space. So uh, you think we're the numbers haven't really changed, but you do think you're optimistic about the future because of these reasons that that the number of women in these spots and in particular some of the spots themselves are ascending in importance, like chief customer or like a chief people or CHRO or whatever they call it. Yeah, if I were to put a really big bow around it, what I'm saying is the biggest thing that's shifting the dynamics of power for women is the rise of the feminine archetype. So forget like men are like this and men are and women are like that. My husband's more nurturing than I am, right? But there are certain attributes that we say, oh, that's feminine and that's feminine. Oh, oh, hold on, can I interrupt you there, Coco? Yeah. yeah. Say that last <laughs> sentence again. My husband is more nurturing than I am. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have known that about your husband, but I never would have. And, and don't please take this the way I mean it, which is actually as a compliment. I wouldn't have guessed that you were overly nurturing. Well, yeah, I'm not. You know, I'm like, I, the kids know me as a straight shooter. I sit them down. I, like, I mean, but my, my, my point being, my point being is that we, we take these attributes like 
nurturing, collaboration, service to other, um, empathy, emotional connection, all of those attributes we attribute with the feminine. And then we take these other ones of, you know, assertion, aggressiveness, risk-taking, power plays as being masculine. And we valued, even in the roles and where we put the strength of the roles, like the the roles that embedded those attributes were the most powerful roles in the company. But now the roles that are that have these attributes embedded in them are becoming really powerful. And society as a whole wants those attributes. You know, and, and we're nurturing our children to have those attributes. Boys can cry, you can be anything you want, you know. If you're gay, it doesn't matter. Like we're we're really trying to, as a society, stop creating so much like if you're a boy you have to be like this and you know if you're a girl you have to be like this and and i think society on a whole in all ways is trying to move towards a an embracing of feminine attributes and that you know that's kind of the to me the big shining silver lining and everything for all of us is you know women what embodies the woman what is you know sort of the embodiment of woman or feminine is being valued in the world and feels like is increasing in value. Yeah. Right? At least the world that we live in feels more, I'll say, stereotypically feminine. Yeah. You know, the big, the reason I say stereotypically is I know some guys that are like very sweet guys who, right. who are not pushovers, who are, not, who are incredible leaders, have incredible careers, and they're in like crazy big hearted. And I think, um, look, I'll just tell you, I'm now a guy who, when I complete a phone call with one of my friends, one of my male friends, I would guess probably 50% of the time I say, I love you at the end of that call. My son and his friends, every time they get off phone calls with each other or they see each other, they, I love you. They hug each other. They even, you know, if they're all sleeping over together, they're all in the same bed. It doesn't matter. Like there's a yeah. lot of, um, yeah, stuff I never saw when I was growing up. Yeah. And I was always a huggy kind of a guy. So that's not new for me, but there's no way 10 or 20 years ago, I was ending conversations with my male friends with, you know, I love you. We might say, I love you, man. And, you know, kind of hang <laughs> it up so that it didn't sound as, as significant. I'm not talking about that. I'm like getting off the phone with my buddy, Mike and saying, love you. Like, yeah. Like, love you. Not kidding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not wrapped yeah. in a bro or whatever, <laughs> or a man. Right, right. <laughs> love you, man. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I see that around, around me too, with the men in my life. And I think it's fantastic. It's gotta be so liberating. Like, Women have had this forever. You know, they used to speculate that women live longer than men in part because we have such good, strong social bonds. And we have, you know, we have friends in the old age and we have a lot more um, emotional support around us. And I need that. So I'm glad it's starting to happen. Well, and it's actually, um, you know, if you want to get into a little bit, I have read articles in publications like Men's Journal and others um, I don't have the data right in front of me, but that say, that say essentially the loneliest demographic in America are men over the age of 30. Mm -hmm. That men over the age of 30 
don't make a new friend. Most American men don't make a friend past college. Yeah. Right? And so, and then you think when you, when you understand the um, mental health challenges in the entrepreneur community, you know, I did a podcast episode about it recently that there's a, a mental health crisis amongst entrepreneurs, right? So, yeah. you know, you put these, you start to put these things together and it's like, uh, there's, there's a scary picture that can emerges. And, and so I, I got to believe the acceptance and the introduction of what historically were considered to be more feminine traits where guys can actually talk to each other and open up and, and, and God forbid cry or God forbid tell them they love each other or whatever's up. Right. How's that not a good look? And I like to be a tough guy and you know, blah, blah, whatever. I'm a guy guy, but like, these are all positive things in my opinion. Yeah. They're, they're hugely positive. And, and, um, I, I see it, you know, again, I, I have my son as, as kind of the modern view of this, but I, I hear him when he, he talks to me about the kinds of conversations he has with his male friends. He still tells me that he is oftentimes the only one that they can have the conversations with around depression, around um, substance abuse, around different things that they're struggling with, um, issues at home, stuff like that. That men are clan are more sort of still, you know. There's, they're they they don't have as much freedom to open up the way women have historically always been allowed to. I don't I don't know if that's a societal thing or or what it is, but I think to the extent that that's changing, it's a really good thing. Yeah, I I, I see it. It look, you know, you know where I live. You don't live that far away, so I I don't know if this is some kind of a man hug lovey bubble or whatever, but I see, I see it across the age demographics. Of course, I see it with younger guys being more this way for all the reasons you talked about. But, you know, I see it with guys my age. I see it. I have, I have friends who are in their 60s who, you know, a dear friend of mine in his 60s recently just sort of came over and said, hey, can I talk? And we started talking and he, there he was crying because he was just having this emotional experience in his life. And, and we had a great conversation. And, and it, you know, I, not that long ago, if you're a 60 year old dude, particularly a dude like this, who is another guy I'd describe as a man's man, we're not talking about somebody who, who stereotypically behaves this way. Um, you know, in sort of with a negative view that you might've had at it at one point, this, you know, this, this is a big thing. And so I, I don't know, maybe it's just the world that I live in. I hope it's happening broadly, but it it would appear to me that men across the board are being kind of a lot more open and, and, and a lot more real with each other. Okay, well, do you watch uh, Queer Eye <laughs> by chance? Oh, it's my favorite show, Coco. No, no, I don't watch. You don't watch it? I watch. Oh my God. I watch UFC fights. <laughs> okay, but okay. So I don't watch fashion TV shows. It's not a fashion TV show. Okay. This, this, what this, is it? The great misnomer. Okay, so Fab Five, right? So it sounds like it's a fashion TV show because they they do have you know one's food, one's interior design, one's fashion, one's hair and grooming or something but the reason i'm bringing it up is because they're in kansas and they're in missouri and they're and and they're um off changing people's lives and they go and they meet with people who are massively homophobic to begin with or who live in very sort of traditional american households or whatever by the end of the show everyone in that community is just in love with these guys 
And they've opened and, and they've created this space where these really manly men have opened up and they're just like the, the, the sort of the fullness of themselves, everything they wanted to be. And it's real. You have to watch them. I cry every time. It's just like and my daughter always looks at me, why are you crying again? I'm like, this is so beautiful. But you know, it's it's amazing. And um the only reason I say that is because I do think that it's starting to penetrate beyond just, you know, hippy dippy California that's always sort of ahead of the, the curve on these kinds of things. I think it's going into um, a, a lot of parts of, of America. I wouldn't say, you know, that it's in any kind of critical mass yet, but I think it's, I think it's um, the sentiments around what we're talking about is being felt everywhere. Well, and and this may be a conversation for another day. I don't know. I think the definition and the role models of what men are um, are changing in a positive way. And I think the the thing that I hope, you know, this all this stuff may sound funny coming from me because I'm somebody who rails against what George Carlin called the pussification of America. Um, <laughs> I don't see this as that. There's no. Um, uh, you can be a very tough guy. You can be physically strong. You can be mentally strong. Uh, you can be a leader. You can be a warrior. You can be a protector. You can be a provider. You know, things that uh, have historically been associated with a more of a male um, uh, orientation. Um, you can be all those things and cry and be sensitive and say, I need help. Say, I'm feeling down and I don't even know fucking why, <laughs> or I just need to talk to somebody or could we just go, you know, guys, we like to do stuff. You know, that's just mm-hmm. like, I like to go surfing with my buddies. Like this, I need to be around another dude doing things we like to do together, whatever it is. Right. I don't see there to me, there's no disconnect between the, the, the historically male oriented things that many of us men are drawn to and being open and having conversations and allowing ourselves to be emotional and allowing to say things that historically we've not said to me saying I'm afraid or I need help or I love you or whatever it is has nothing to do with showing weakness. Well, the same thing, if you, if you bring that back into the business world and you think of companies as being individual humans, because we're made up of a group of individual humans, the same thing is happening at the corporate level. Companies have to Historically, companies have been very um, resistant to showing resistant to showing weakness and vulnerability, and um, and now companies are having to do that. Right? They're having to say, "I'm sorry." They're having to figure out how to have a real, genuine relationship with customers. They're they're having to figure out how to say, "We don't know how to solve this problem." We're looking for a partner. So th- those kinds of um, skills, as, as we develop those skills as individual humans, that is making better skill in, in, in the, the, the companies in general. In fact, actually, I would suggest, if you haven't met him, have you interviewed Nick Mehta from Gainsight? I have not. No, I, I know the company's name a little bit, but I don't know him. Well, the reason I bring him up is um, because he's kind of the guy we've been talking about, which is cool. But um, but also uh, he is leading um, Gainsight's in the customer success space, and and Gainsight leads their conference every year's Pulse. They they got big enough this year to, to do it at, at um, the convention center here. It's like five thousand people or so, or maybe more. Um, 
in any case, a lot of what he talks about and what Gainsight as a customer success oriented career and whatnot is talking about is is vulnerability and and how do you collaborate in a you know a meaningful way with the customer and all these things that really you know if you if you can't do it as a human you can't do it as a company right and I think that's the that's the thing that um, these things are intermixed they're intertwined. I love that. If you can't do it as a human, you can't do it as a company. <laughs> it, it it harkens back to uh, we had Jerry Colonna on as his new book reboot was coming out, and uh, if you haven't read it, I highly highly recommend it. It's a stunner, um, okay. and uh, I won't get it exactly right, but uh, he said something to the effect of, um, you know, if, if you want to be a great leader, a great CEO, you got to start with being a great person. And, and therefore, you've got to do what he calls radical self-inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Legendary people build legendary businesses. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and if you're just, uh, yeah, I guess we still have this fascination with the assholes of the world that build great companies which sort of go in, fly in the face of this new way of being that we're talking about. But, um, you know, how sustainable is, is Oracle past Larry's lifetime? I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, what's happened to Apple post uh, Steve Jobs or, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know what, I, I guess that's the, I'm, I'm stumbling a little bit on like, why did those guys succeed? Because they're clearly not the most evolved human beings. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it would appear that we're seeing a new breed. I mean, um, you know, if you look at Satya Nadella. Yes, amazing. Yeah. Like, beyond amazing. It's a yeah. trillion dollar, it's a trillion dollar yeah. company. Like, yeah, yeah. When he took over Microsoft, Microsoft was on a slow burn to becoming right. Wang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, they were, it was going to take a long time because the category uh, king and queen positions they have are massive, but, but there was nobody. How, how long has he been the CEO now? S- six or seven six years? Six years, maybe. Yes. Yeah. 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 So fantastic. Yeah. It was not looking great. Right. right? You're right. Yeah. And so, and I look, I, I don't know the guy from a hole in the wall, but I had a fascinating conversation uh, about him with Bob Evans, who's a student of this stuff. And it seems like his management style is very different than the Darth Vader-y style that um, you you and I grew up uh, around a lot of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, and he's, he's just loved and, and uh, all of that new success is really attributed to him. So that's... Yeah. yeah, no, he's an inspiring guy and the results speak for themselves. I mean, Okay. Similarly with Bank of America, people really attribute this, you know, great ride that they're on to, uh, to the person that Brian is and the way that he reigns, Brian Moynihan. Yeah. So yeah, I think there is a new breed. I agree. All right, Coco, anything else you want to touch on before we kick out? Um, no, I mean, the, the only other things that are on my mind are I'm fundraising. I'm taking um, what is a nonprofit today and I'm, I'm shifting it to a commercial entity and I'm fundraising, which is a whole... Oh, wow. ...in and of itself. <laughs> so, so let's maybe spend a sec on this. Uh, you are okay. going to be a for-profit business. Yeah, so the, the nonprofit will continue to exist. But what I've discovered is that I'm solving a problem for white women. 
Um, and yet I have an incredible model that really should go be a commercial entity. And so the model, everything that we are today is flipping a switch and becoming a commercial entity and seeking funding. And the nonprofit is going to go figure out how we get uh, drive more diverse women into um, this ecosystem. So women of color and, and underrepresented women in, in general. So yeah, so we're we're off uh, um, building the pitch deck and uh, you know socializing the story and trying to figure out whether we're going after seed or going straight to Series A because we've already got strong uh, um, revenues that are recurring and um, we we look like a Series A in a lot of ways. Well, that's exciting. I had no idea about that. Congratulations! Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Don't forget to get your category design right. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. There's a lot of that going on. Yeah, well, there is a lot of that going on. Well, I'm stoked for you, um, and I hope you'll come back down the line and um, give me an update on how you're doing. And if I can help, please let me know. Yeah, we'll do. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Coco. It's been wonderful catching up. Likewise. Good hey, legendary, my friend. Okay. <laughs> there she is, the wonderful Coco Brown. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, you might also love episode 83 with Sue Barsamian. She's the single most effective executive I know, and she's one of the most sought after board members in Silicon Valley. Check out episode 83 of Follow Your Different with Sue Barsamian. Now, my friends at NetSuite want to remind you how critical governance is to all companies of all sizes. And part of having world-class government uh, governance is having world-class processes and systems to build and grow your business on. And that's where NetSuite comes in. NetSuite is a complete business and financial management system in the cloud. NetSuite handles the core responsibilities required for world-class governance, like financial reporting, audit, compliance, planning, treasury, and capital structure. With NetSuite, you get a more consistent, complete, and real-time view of the risks around your business and how to manage risk and regulation wisely. And you can increase the efficiency and maintain a cost-effective organization with the right amount of controls and reporting to keep, face, to keep pace with fast-growing revenue. With NetSuite, you can govern your business and grow your business to become a world-class leader. And they are offering you, as a listener to this podcast, a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. Go to netsuite.com slash different, and there you'll be able to set up your growth review. That's netsuite.com slash different. And you can find us on the internet at lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D. And while you're there, I'd love it if you subscribe. Uh, we have a wonderful newsletter we send out almost every week. Uh, we only send you stuff we think is awesome that you're going to enjoy reading. A lot of it is based on things we're learning from our guests on this podcast. And I can also promise you we will never, ever, ever send you junk or sell your email address to anybody else. Subscribe at lockhead.com. All right. We would like to thank the good folks at the Athena Alliance. Check them out at athenaalliance.org. That's athenaalliance.org. 
a podcast that I think is wonderful, check out the Mission Daily Podcast. This is a podcast for smart people who want to get smarter. Check out the Mission Daily Podcast. Instant classic play bigger, how pirates, dreamers, and innovators create and dominate markets. It's my first book. Why not pick up a couple hundred thousand copies today? <laughs> OneLifeFullyLived.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one life fullylive.org growwire.com it's what entrepreneurial leaders are uh, reading today it's for stories of innovation uh, there's written content there's a wonderful youtube channel and a podcast check out growwire.com uh, my friends at Bur- Bur- blah, 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 blah. you should learn how to talk if you're going to have a podcast <laughs> My friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistance, is it time to try to scale and leverage yourself with the power of a virtual assistant? Then why not check out bottleneck.online today? Another podcast I love, Marketing Over Coffee with my buddy John Wall. Check it out. And the amazing folks at Donors Choose. They joined us on episode 91. I highly recommend it. This is the nonprofit connecting you to teachers who are trying to make a difference for students who need your help. If you want to make a direct donation and difference to a a group of kids, go to donorschoose.org today. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this podcast gets produced in a studio that does contain nuts. We are produced by the nicest man in podcasting, Jamie J and Sarah Knox, editor Mike Dean, show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to teach diversity, get out of the passing lane, support your local entrepreneurs. Remember the sage words of Joan Jett, who said, I don't give a damn about my bad reputation. And thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Harvey Weinstein. Sorry, Harv, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. And uh, stay legendary. And of course, we're together again. Follow your difference.